0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live Immediately podcast with Mike Campbell. Thank you so much for listening. This is where I have conversations with people who are living life on their own terms. We dive into those big moments that have pushed them through the fears and self-limiting beliefs that hold so many of us back. This episode had a huge impact on my life personally and I know if you listen to it, do the work, it will change yours too and have a beautiful rippling effect. And on that note, This is an episode to share, so if you know someone that you think could benefit from it, then please pass it on. My guest today is Sean Askin OC, and we get started right from when Sean and I jump on the Skype call. There was this instant connection between us, and Sean started asking me questions about my own life, showing that he cared. You'll soon learn that caring is a beautiful part of who Sean is. Sean is the founder and CEO of Askin OC Chocolate, a small business based in Springfield, Missouri. Their chocolate is world-renowned, award-winning, and Forbes recently named them as one of the 25 best small companies in America. But this episode isn't about chocolate. It's about chocolate. That's something that you'll soon understand once you've listened to the episode. You see, the way Sean does business is the way it should be taught in business school. Sean's beautiful business model is all about direct trade with farmers of cocoa beans in the Philippines, Tanzania and Ecuador, about open book management, profit sharing, reverse scale, kinship and community. Sean and I dive into all of those topics and how his company sustainably feeds thousands of children who were once malnourished without donations, simply giving money or charity. We talk about this notion of enough and to ask ourselves, What is enough? That individually and in business, it's easy to get caught up in striving for more. But enough is where we can do the work we love with people we love. Towards the end of the podcast, Sean talks about and guides you through a visioning exercise. It's something that he does and something that he has his chocolate university students, his farmers, and the school students that he works with in other countries do. It is powerful. And if you want to create personal change in your life, I recommend that you do it as well. Sean has recently written a book, co-authored with his daughter Lauren, titled Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. I don't recommend many products, but I can't speak more highly of a book than this one. I personally purchased the audiobook version through Audible, and I loved hearing Sean narrate every word and tell his story. I have links in the show notes to where you can purchase it, so if you're thinking of a little something for someone for Christmas, or even better, yourself, I highly recommend it. And make sure you reach out to Sean and let him know what you thought of his book. I know he'd love to hear from you. Sean is a beautiful human who has crafted a way to do meaningful business and live life with love and passion. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean Askin OC. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am very good, thanks, mate. Very good indeed. How's your... Uh, what is it over there? It's Wednesday, I'm gathering. How's the first half of your week yeah. been? Um,
1: pretty good. Pretty good. This has been a very busy time of the year for us. And, uh, like, the busiest day ever was Monday. Oh, wow. And so um, it's been pretty crazy. Pretty crazy.
0: How about a- for you? yeah it's been good we've uh you know we're coming into to summer here, so everyone's kind of alive and down at the beach but it's uh it is getting busy coming up to christmas my uh, my wife and i we have a design company so lots of uh lots of people need things before christmas but it's uh it's been all fun and games
1: oh that's cool you have a did you say a design
0: yeah my wife is a, a really amazing illustrator and graphic designer um and oh. uh, so she does um lots of beautiful things. And I have, I'm so bad at drawing. I make stick people look fat. (laughs) So (laughs) I get to do all of the, uh, the non fun things, but, uh, they're, uh, they're fun to me. So I get to do a lot of the, 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 client facing stuff and, um, and, uh, all of that kind of thing. Like my, my background is, um, in corporate marketing.
1: Okay. Well, your yeah, your website looks really cool. Did she design your website?
0: No, that was all me. So that's the funny oh. thing. So I do, um, I built our website and, um, and all that kind of stuff. I actually did that through Squarespace. Um, oh, it looks good. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm, i actually need to do a bit of a, an uh, not an update, but just kind of a refresh, have the, have the homepage a little bit, um, more, um, yeah, more about me and kind of oh. what I do and stuff like that. But
1: but you're not. But you're not house sitting your way through North America now.
0: No. So we we've been back for about a year, year now. Okay. But, um, but, okay. Yeah, we absolutely love that. That was like a year over there. So it was. Um, I, the the aim would be to do something like that again. Um, and with uh technology and and freedom and stuff like that, it makes it a bit easier. But uh, our little girl, she's six, so having a bit of mm-hmm. um, stability for her and and we unfortunately it can only have one child. So her friendship group is, is quite important to be around mm-hmm. people her age. So we, we mm-hmm. keep, keep thinking of that in the back of our mind. But
1: of course, of course. Yeah. Now is that, there... wow, and you live close to the beach too. Yeah. We're, That's cool. We're
0: about five minutes away. So it's funny because a lot of the places we were traveling through in America were like rural towns. You know, we were in the North woods of Wisconsin, um, in a town called clam lake of 37 people and we're in breckenridge colorado and upstate new york and this rural living we just absolutely loved and and since we've been back we've been looking for for like rural places in australia that is still kind of close to family and friends um but here in australia like you go rural and away from the coast and it's it's just bloody hot <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's yeah. finding that that happy medium um yeah uh
1: huh. Um, let me ask you a question before we begin, unless we've already started. Have we started?
0: No, we haven't started. Unless you want this to be the start.
1: <laughs> it can be.
0: We'll see what happens. Just go ahead
1: and push record.
0: Um, I, I,
1: if, I, 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 is if there is a button? I don't even know. Does it have a button anymore? It's probably Siri. Siri, record
0: now. <laughs> well, I, um, I I already recorded, so we'll see. <laughs> okay,
1: good. Okay. What well, my question was for you and maybe this is too personal but the you say on your on your website that seeing people you love who you know who would be compassionate and loving parents struggling to begin their families was heartbreaking and while watching this unfold we started to look at our own family and then you say this simple shift in mindset and appreciation enabled change to cascade through our lives. What was the thing? I mean, was it, was it some, was it, do you remember, was it a moment? Was it over a period of weeks or how did that, how did that happen for you?
0: Yeah. So it was more about, so 2014, we were trying to, grow our family from three to four and as much as when you're younger you think the the trying part is going to be all exciting when you're in the middle of it it, it's not and and it becomes Mm -hmm. quite clinical and you've got um thermometers to see who's ovulating and all of this kind of stuff and Mm -hmm. and it brought up a lot of anxiety for my wife Mm -hmm. and whilst we were going through that we had some friends that were having miscarriages. Um, Mm -hmm. We had some other friends that were trying and it took a couple of months and we had some friends who had been trying and trying for for years and two groups of friends actually that were going through IVF and all of this kind of stuff. Um, One of them coming back realizing that um, there were some bigger issues there, and they're actually now going down the adoption path. The the other mm-hmm. ones, thankfully, have now um, had, a, had a child through IVF. But through all that, we were at home kind of discussing how we wanted to grow our family and feeling that our family of three wasn't enough, whilst when we were out, we were with our friends kind of listening to their stories, going, wow, you know, I feel so sorry for you and all this kind of stuff. And then it was kind of one day we came home and it was just like, you know what, what we have, this is our family. Our family of three is what we have. And if we grow that by one, it doesn't mean that our family is now complete. It means that we now have a different family. We now have a family of four. Mm -hmm. And once we kind of had that realization and we stopped kind of worrying about it it just really made us look at a lot of things differently and i think a lot of that appreciation came back to to what you have and not the things that you want Mm -hmm. um but like was there an exact moment and an exact conversation that i can recall yeah i i don't think so but like i do remember kind of being in the kitchen with with my wife uh Inga and it must have been like after we had been out with Our our group of friends and it was really just you know what we're we're super lucky to have this amazingly healthy girl um and also too now that we've learned why we can't have kids um my wife has and i always get this word wrong um metriosis or demetriosis or something like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the reason so when with our daughter we were only trying for like a month, like one cycle. And she came straight away. And, and that's because my wife had gone off the pill and, and all of this stuff. So we were really lucky with her. And my wife has had operations and all this kind of stuff. But it's just not, just not the case. Just not uh-huh. meant to be. And, and, and you know, uh-huh. in, 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 uh-huh. hi- in hindsight, maybe only having one child, it made it easier for us to do that traveling uh-huh. through America. Um, uh-huh. So it's... Uh-huh. You know things kind of all work out in the end Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know my mom always says things work out in the end and if it's not the end if things haven't worked out then it's not the end it's just it's not the end yeah it's just it's just it's just hard sometimes whilst we're going through it exactly to to realize that um yeah which is yeah interesting but um
1: well okay i didn't mean to commandeer the conversation i'm always curious about these things so
0: no definitely no thank <clears throat> you thank you definitely for that sean and and let's say that this we have started so happy days mm-hmm. and yes um, and and sean you know to to bring it back to you but this is exactly how i want the conversation to go back and forth most definitely but you, you are the the founder and ceo yes. of, of Askinosi chocolate which is this small company of 15 employees um However, your chocolate is world-renowned, it's award-winning and your company was recently named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America, which is a huge achievement. But what I find even more beautiful is the business model that your company focuses on And, and you have direct trade with farmers of cocoa beans in the Philippines and Tanzania and Ecuador. You're all about open book management, profit sharing, um, reverse scale and kinship and community and I'm sure there's many other things there that that I've left out and you've recently written a book along with your daughter Lauren uh, titled Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. Um, So firstly, Sean, I just want to say congratulations on, on all of that and especially your book which I absolutely loved listening to. So I bought a copy of the audio book through um, Audible, and to be honest, I I feel like I already know you, which is probably why <laughs> which is probably why our conversation started like it did. So, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, that's funny.
1: That is well, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, I haven't talked to anybody yet who heard the audio book, so that's cool. And it was uh, quite a thing to sit in the studio for three days and. And uh, hear myself talk, but um, you know, it was, it was quite an experience uh, both writing the book and then recording it. And there are some parts in the book which uh, are still uh, painful for me and they were hard for me to even read. And I had to do five or six takes,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: of some of those things, but that's okay. You know, that's life. And it's, it's part of the process.
0: And, and, and for me, it, like hearing your voice like it it feels you know when you talk about some of those painful things like for me you were telling them to me i wasn't just reading them on on the page which is what i i love about audio like i f- you know, as I said before, I feel like I know you. I've, I've heard your voice. I've heard the inflections and, and the things that, you know, your voice changes when you get really passionate about something. You know, when I read some reviews of just audiobooks in general, people say, I don't like it when the author reads because the author might not have a great voice. You definitely have a great voice. And for oh, me, and for oh, me I, I, like, I love it when any author reads because it feels that, you know, it's, it's, it comes from, from the heart, not just words off the page.
1: Right. Right. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for that. And I'm, I'm glad that it was uh, a pleasant experience for you. <laughs> but thank you,
0: you. You spoke about some of those those tough moments. What what were some of those tough moments it was hard to write and read? You
1: know, it's been a long time. It's been years since the great sorrow of my life to date. Um, and that is my father's death when I was 14 years old. He was a lawyer like me. And he was diagnosed with lung cancer when I was 12. And that was a really, really tough experience to just happen to begin with. And then to relive it all writing the book um, with my daughter so that she was right in the middle of it too, uh, helping me tell that story um, in a way that wasn't just a story, if I could say, in a way that might let readers and listeners see themselves in Mm. that story of a broken heart, because uh, many of us in the world have experienced a broken heart, and if we haven't, then we need to really examine the depth of our lives, and so that was hard, and then, of course, reading it out loud. I didn't realize how hard it would be to, to read the words out loud just into a microphone, Um, because even though it's been 40 years, you know, um, it's, it still carries a sting Mm. of pain and, um, and I'm sure in some ways it always will. And I think maybe that's the way it's supposed to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I have fortunately never gone through um, the death of, of either of my parents. They're they're probably going to be around longer than I am. They're they're super healthy and 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 super in love, which is beautiful. But I don't think I don't think we're designed to ever get over something like that.
1: We aren't, and and the thing that I I just spoke to a couple of thousand high school students last week uh, in my hometown, seniors in high school who are about to. Uh, figure out um, whether they're going to go to college or get jobs and, and um, I explained to them that maybe maybe your parents haven't died or a brother or sister or something like this, maybe you haven't experienced tragedy, but you know as I was saying a moment ago, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of connection that we all have with each other. Um, because of our sorrow and we've all experienced different degrees of sorrow and they're not the same and that's fine but it's it's in the it's in the midst or depth of that sorrow that we find kinship with each other we find shared humanity Uh, compassion is born in those places of a broken heart and so um when you were talking about um you and your wife wanting to grow your family, and I'm sure in the depths of those moments, and that there was um, something more than disappointment, and um, and I would say even go as far as to say that at some point you might have been brokenhearted about that, and um, so that means that that it, it's a place, it's a it's a place of, um, it's a place for us to not immediately push away from Mm -hmm. despite its um, discomfort, but a place for us to, you know, join with other people who may be going through the same thing or other people who have experienced grief. And, uh, I don't know, it's just a place for our uh, um, community and coming together. I think
0: it's, it's so interesting that you talk about, my sorrow of us not being able to have a, a child because one of my questions to you was going to be around about like, cause in the book you write about how our vocation and we can kind of talk a little bit about vocation as well can be found on the other side of great sorrow. And, and I was going to say to you, but what happens if you've never experienced great sorrow? Because that's kind of how, how I felt like I felt like nothing dramatically bad, had ever really happened to me but then i guess you've kind of given me an example there i had just never really really thought of that about that because for me i didn't look at us not being able to have a second child as this great sorrow i kind of saw it as us being really fortunate that we were able to have one
1: yes and you've you've i believe you've made the point and that that is that um you know the sorrows of of our lives come in all shapes and sizes and degrees of intensity and and um we we um should be on the lookout i think as um as humans we should be on the lookout for um all kinds of sorrow in our own lives and in the lives of others. Joseph Campbell said that um, we are called to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. And I believe that, not in a morbid way, but in a way that will permit us, um, like I was saying, this shared humanity. And when we're able to share the story of sorrow with others in a place of non-judgment or, you know, often when we get together with people and we share a story of sorrow, the first thing that they want to do is either fix it Mm. or tell their story of sorrow Mm. that, that uh, either normalizes it or one ups them. And um, I think it's important uh, that we, Um, try to not do that, you know, that we, uh, in in fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is I co-founded a grief center for children and teenagers about 17 years ago now um, for children and teens who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling. And we train our volunteers, including me, you know, to not listen to a story of sorrow and try to fix it, normalize it or one up it, you know, by saying, Oh, well, my story of sorrow was worse than yours. And so I think when we practice listening to the stories that break people's hearts in some way that, um, it just, it just gives us, it just opens up a world of opportunity for relationship and connection. And, and, um, and i you know, the, the thing is, and I even, I told the students this last week, if you're 17 or 18 years old, you we could talk, I could go one by one with these students and I'm I'm certain that at least over a majority of them, I could talk to them probably one-on-one. I don't think they would admit it in front of their friends, but we can get to someplace where they've had a broken heart, mm-hmm. even at that young of an age. Surely they've been brokenhearted. And um, we just spend so much time in our world trying to push away from it, trying to fix it, trying to take a drug for it, or just, you know, and, and that doesn't help. It doesn't help. And it didn't help me. It didn't help me.
0: And so how did you then turn that great sorrow around into this beautiful work that you do through your vocation?
1: It was, um, the, you know, I was asking you about your situation and man, man, you took this, you, you, your family took this bold, brave, courageous step of, you know, saying, we're going to sell everything. We're going to take this adventure. And, um, so, you know, I, I could ask you the same thing. And I did Mm -hmm. ask you the same thing in a way. And with me, like you, it wasn't, um it was gradual but for me there was kind of a moment you know it was the end of a murder case i was a criminal defense lawyer um for 20 years a private lawyer defending people accused of very serious crimes and my specialty was murder and um it was the end of a murder case i believed in it i believed in a good outcome for my client we won the case but At the time, right before we we concluded the case, so this was the jury trial was still going on, I could just sense it. I mean, something happened, you know, there uh, with my client, and I was able to feel in my body, emotionally, spiritually that it was over now at the time I didn't have enough awareness to say oh it's over um, I but as I reflected back on that moment I, I could tell that was sort of the the boundary line of you know then and and now and um, and so that that's how it happened for me where I knew I had to do something else and it took me five years to figure out what that um, you know sort of adventure like you guys uh, undertook what that would be and what that would look like and to get up enough you know bravery and courage to throw my perfectly good law career away Mm -hmm. and 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 start something new and 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 the book i'd like to think is primarily about that space between oh man i've got to do something else Mm -hmm. i can't do this anymore and Starting doing the thing the book isn't about how to do the thing. The book is about this windy path That I took that I hope other people can see themselves in in some part of the path uh, between You know Knowing Mm -hmm. I had to do something else and what that something else would be
0: But you're something else you've been able to really Interlock that with with a with a for-profit business it's not like you set up a a charity in a developing country and built a school
1: I believe that small business really small businesses like one or two people or ten people can be the solution for many of the social problems we face in the world and I Obviously, you know I work with nonprofits, I work with NGOs around the world, um, and and I believe they have a role to play. But I believe that for-profit business also has a role to play, and maintain their healthy profitability at the same time. And so that's what we've tried to do over the last ten years, and to 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 say we're small, we're a very small company with few employees but we can take time to do these things and not only can we take these time take the time to do these things in our community here at home in springfield missouri or in the origin communities you know in tanzania or the philippines but and this is this mysterious thing those um elements of of community development And they are part of who we are as a company and therefore they are part of our product, not in a new age kind of way. I mean, in a, like a real way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is, it's, it's, it's this notion that I describe in the book and it sometimes confuses people. But what I say is, is that, our business supports our vocation and our vocation supports our business it's a circle
0: it's not about and the chocolate it's about the chocolate y- yes <laughs> thank
1: you yes yeah that's exactly it well it's, it, that's it, it, exactly it. Yeah, it it's yeah. it's fun it's
0: it's so true because like you know you run this for profit business And in the process, you help and support so many people, but you don't, you know, as I said, you don't simply donate money to a charity or set up a a charity that you fund. Like, this is kind of part of your, your business DNA and, like, the way that you do business helps people and helping people is the way that you do business. And, you know, this This kind of, I guess, is what you mean by it's It's not about the chocolate, it's it's about the chocolate. But you kind of speak there too about, you know, our business supports our vocation and our vocation supports our business. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by vocation? We've spoken a little bit about it today, but just kind of maybe frame what mm-hmm. what you mean by that.
1: I mean, by vocation, I mean... The, the, the work and the activities that we're called to do, however you define calling, because people define it differently, and I don't have a specific definition for that, and I talk about that in the book with other authors like Parker Palmer and Thomas Merton, um, and they do a great job of that. And, but I believe that it's, this, it's the activities, and in my case it's the activities of work and I believe that work and life are really sort of blended into each other, and that's fine. And um, what, are the, what are those activities that we're called to do? What is, the, what is the thing that we do during the day, during our work hours, that has purpose and that is part of a story bigger than just us? That's, that's what I'm saying when I mean vocation.
0: And so were you then, in a way, called to make chocolate? Or were you called to help communities or in a sense were you called to help communities by making chocolate
1: all of the above and and I'm comfortable in saying that and if, if you'd asked me years ago I, I wouldn't have had I wouldn't I would not have been as confident as I am now in saying all of the above. And that is, and, and, and actually writing the book. I mean, I knew what I was doing. I've been doing this for 10 years. I didn't know how to say it. Mm. And I did. And and that, and my daughter really helped me with, uh, with articulating that. And I, I say that, like I talk about the, because I have a connection with, um, Trappist monks and, and uh, because it's the, the, the monastery that I go to near my home is such a central part of my life and as a family brother there I'm, I'm, I'm connected to the rule of Benedict and all of that but there are Benedictine monks who are Trappists in Europe and I, and I talk about this in the book where they say um, we brew beer in order to support our life as monks period and that's fine. And we, we know of instances all over the world where um, monasteries are making a thing in order to live the life of a monastic, of whatever it may be. And it stops there. But what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm taking that um, and drawing the circle back again and saying, I am um, making chocolate so that I can do all of these things in the world, and I'm doing all of these things in the world so that I can make chocolate mm-hmm. that's great, that tastes good, that people want to buy and spend money on. And so that is why, and I, 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 don't, I talk about this a little bit, but I, even though, I, it's probably even on my website, but I, I have sort of a little um, mini campaign that I'd like to remove the phrase um, social entrepreneurship Um, from the the English lexicon and because um, I am not, I am not, I shouldn't say uh, across the board, but in most cases, I don't believe in social businesses whose primary purpose is to serve. And the reason I don't believe in it and that's, a, I know that's a, I mean, an absolute and I'm not it isn't absolute, but the reason why I don't really align with that is because I think that ultimately the product or service will suffer at some point. So if the business is not dependent on the quality of the product or ser, the product or service, then I suppose there would be room for that and that's fine. Um, but in, in my case or in the case of shoes or just fill in the blank, any other widget, I think that if, if, if it's quality dependent, then we need to be ever mindful of the pure profitability of the company and why it's important to make money um, and why it's important to have a great product and – I can say all of this because in the West we have this dualistic approach to business, which I think we're in the midst of sort of, um, understanding a new approach, which I guess you could say is maybe more, you know, non dualistic, potentially Eastern, um, in its approach by saying that these things coexist with each other. Like we were saying, it's not Mm -hmm. about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. And so the point being is that they're inseparable. The profitability of the company and the laser focus that we have on the quality of the product is inseparable from our vocation of taking neighborhood high school students to Tanzania to meet cocoa farmers. They are, that, that is every bit as part of my, it's not, um, the work that we do, um, with um, feeding malnourished kids in Tanzania and the Philippines, it is every bit a part of my company as making the next chocolate bar so that we can ship it out for Christmas holidays. They are
0: equal and I think that's a really important uh, an important point because it 's not that you donate donate ten percent of your profits or twenty percent of your profits to this side business of of helping people it really is intertwined and part of that dna of 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 what your company does and and you you write in the book about how people you know they'll be at meetings talking about chocolate and at the same time they'll be talking about how you can how the chocolate university is going and we can kind of dig a little bit deeper into that as well so like on that point like can you Maybe, maybe explain how you know you you f- you feed those schools in um, in Tanzania and the Philippines because that's a really interesting point because it's not so much about, as I said, donating money, but it's the framework that you've been able to set up so so they can actually do it by themselves.
1: Yes, the um, we've been doing this for about seven years now. And it started in the Philippines with uh, a, a partner school in the jungle near where we buy the cocoa beans. And a little neighborhood school in my town near my factory, these children raised money so that the school in the Philippines could have a computer and be connected to the Internet. Well, um, I went back the next year, and I just happened to be talking with the principal. And she said – I said, well, tell me about the nutrition of the kids. And she said, oh, yeah, well, we have – you know, a hundred malnourished children that are extremely malnourished. And I was I, I was surprised that I was so foolish to not even ask that question before we got a computer for the school. I'm like, what about food? And and so that ended up translating into us working with the PTA, the Parent Teachers Association of this little school, and they make little hot cho- they make a hot chocolate drink called tablia. And it's a traditional Filipino drink. And so the PTA members made these little discs of chocolate, uh, cocoa bean, ground up cocoa bean, and put them on our container of cocoa beans. We sold them for ten dollars, and that provided over a hundred meals that ten dollars to the school. Because all we did, we took all the money and we pushed it back to the school monthly, and they um, they sourced the food locally, and then they started growing gardens at their school and pta members volunteered to make the food and then they monitor the height and weight and school attendance of these kids And then there were no kids zero kids uh, malnourished at the school and then the program expanded by that little school taught another school down the road how to do it so we left that first school they're on their own doing it now now we're oh, almost two years into the next school Um, and helping them as their partner and, um, in the, in the, in Tanzania, it's similar except worse. A thousand kids in this high school were eating only one meal a day, not just at school. I mean, the whole day you cannot learn on one meal a day. And so the PTA there, the farmers grow rice. It's a beautiful gourmet rice. And we, um, with together packaged it up in one kilo bags. We sold it for $16 and 50 cents and that provided 220 meals for these kids so we did that for five years and had tremendous success and here's the cool part about this nobody donated a penny not a penny it was all by leveraging the marketplace from what you know the product that they made that the pta members made themselves or grew themselves and then we um Managed this program and gave them back the money and then they did it and they they are doing it And so we've gosh, I think now we've surpassed 1.5 million meals Just with our little wow. company and, and now we have 17 people and that's it
0: and you you um, In a sense uh, uh, You know you helped manage a few things and you were able to bring their product to America into the American market Can you also tell your uh, cocoa bean and rice story? Which one? The one where, oh, the right where I had to leave the, it behind. The, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, this was. Yeah.
1: Well, so there are the, the this work. Um, so, by the way, listeners of Mike's podcast, this is all. It's not always pretty. Um, these these challenging things happen, and what in this instance in Tanzania, we had a twenty-foot container that would hold X. Um, metric tons of cocoa beans and the farmers brought the cocoa beans and the rice in a truck almost 30 hours to the port of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania then they had to transfer it to another container and when they did that um, our shipping agent in Dar es Salaam said the one metric ton of rice that you're gonna feed this you know that we were gonna sell to feed the school won't fit with the beans so you're they originally just presumed that we were going to leave the rice behind and uh this was you know a really a point of real disappointment for us to to realize that we couldn't you know fit this all in and um, we had some decisions to make and pretty quickly and was i going to leave behind um this rice that we were going to sell and feed those you know to use as money to feed the students for a year or was i going to leave the beans behind that we needed to make chocolate and sell and have profit and uh, i ended up leaving the beans behind and i ended up not only leaving them behind but i gave them back to the farmer so they could sell them again Mm -hmm. and um it wasn't really a hard decision to make and the reason it wasn't is because we had a commitment to that school and there were there given the the dire circumstances that they were in no we had no choice really i mean we we sat around for a minute trying to like think of you know circumstance, you know, kind of the no-win scenario of what we could do to fix this, but there really wasn't any other way. And that's what we did. And and that's to say, you know, these things that we do as business people when we're trying to when we're trying to have kinship and mutuality and relationship with the people we're working with, it's not always pretty and it's sometimes really messy and it can be hurtful and and that's okay. It is totally okay. We learned things. We learned from this situation, and um, and it turned out fine. And one of the other things I should mention too, that is part of this, is is that yes, we're you know now 17 people, and we have this program, the school lunch programs, but <clears throat> we've designed these in such a way that we won't always be involved because. We want the schools to be able to be on their own. And one of the things that I I take great pride in is that you could go to these schools today and you will not see our name anywhere. A lot I don't know if you've traveled to any places in the developing world, but often, you know, charitable organizations, NGOs, and private corporations will paint their logo all over these schools. So everybody passing by will know of the great work that these companies and nonprofits have done, literally flying a flag of fill-in-the-blank company mm-hmm. at the school. And I pride myself on – on when I'm proverbially, let's say, backing out of one of these schools, walking backwards, I'm literally taking a tree branch you know, and swiping away my footsteps – as I'm leaving so that there won't be a trace of us, other than the relationships that we've created, of course, but I want them as partners to know that they did it. We didn't, we didn't do it. We were their friends. We helped out with some logistics, but they did it, they can do it. And uh, I mean, this is a big deal for, I mean, so much so, some company, some Europe, European company, uh, painted my name on the side of a school uh, this past summer because we had you know, helped build a classroom, and um, they also helped. And I, they sent me a picture, and I said, you didn't ask if you could put my name on the school, and I'd, I would respectfully request you paint over it. I don't want my name on the side of the school in no. Africa. So that's – maybe I, I yeah. took too much time answering no, that question. No, no, yeah. definitely.
0: And I, th- I love that because it's all about this – you know, this hand up instead of that hand out, which is which is so beautiful, what you do through all, all of your, your kinship and, and community building. But a lot of this really, I don't want to say a lot of this wouldn't have been able to happen, but I feel a lot of this was possible because of the direct trade that you have with the farmers. Like by going directly to those farmers, you then saw the schools, you then saw the communities that they lived in and and the help that, that you could do for that community. Would, would that be a correct thing to say?
1: It absolutely would be correct. And direct trade for us and is means that we go there and that I go there. And I think in January I'm going to go to the Philippines and it'll be my 36th origin trip. And um, I could – delegate this to someone else if I wanted to, but I love going and going is part of direct trade, going and just talking to people and looking at the crop and figuring out quality control and figuring out, um, farming practices and harvesting practices. It's all part of both the quality of the product and the depth of the relationship. And they're both, um, essentially inseparable from each other. And you're Right if I had not traveled to this place, I would have never, I would not have known. I wouldn't have seen with my eyes and, um, I wouldn't have experienced this, um, um, potential partnership with the schools or the farmers. And this has happened, you know, time after time, after time, you know, year after year. And one of the things that I talk about in the book and, um, that I believe relates to this question and that is reverse scale. And maybe you were, I didn't hope I didn't take you out of order of what you were wanting to talk about. But, but when I, when I, when I travel to these places or, um, and I don't delegate those things, even as the CEO of the company, then I'm giving myself an opportunity um, for these things we've been talking about for kinship, for shared humanity, And those places of shared humanity and kinship are the exact things that tether me to my vocation and the vocation that got me started on all of this to begin with. So often, as entrepreneurs, we're constantly reminded by the world that we need to grow, grow, grow. We need to scale. We need to become bigger and more. And when we do that, which is fine, often we have investors pushing us in that direction Thankfully, I don't have any, but many of your listeners, I'm sure, can relate to this. And so my my point of this is we need to take a deep breath and we need to really question what we're doing there. Because if you got into business because this is your vocation and this is your calling and this is your purpose, if we're not careful, we end up growing and risking that we distance ourselves from People, humanity and connection. It happens all the time. And so what happens is the CEO, the entrepreneur scales, gets bigger and essentially delegates the the very thing that brought him or her this joy in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, they're looking for the next thing to do, trying to find that elusive joy and peace um, that that came to them in the first place, but they they grew it away by trying to scale. And so this point of direct trade is part of that. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, I, I think that one question is, well, is direct trade possible on a really, really large scale, like on a Starbucks scale? And I don't know the answer to that, but I would suspect... Not <laughs> I'm just being honest, and i I think that that a, that a company of that size would have to really, really work at that, and it would it would be really hard because it's counterintuitive and and um, so anyway that's, so that's what I think about that direct trade
0: and but what you, you kind of spoke there about that that more 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 mentality of you know whether you're in business or just in life, we always feel like we need to to get more. And in the book, you speak about this notion of enough. That yeah. that what is enough? And and how do we enable enough to kind of be that guide? And it kind of ties into what you, what you spoke about there. Like sometimes the, the founder or the CEO, they're trying to scale, they're trying to grow. But it really kind of, if you boil down to like, what is enough for you to be able to do what you do and really enjoy life? Because I feel that kind of touches on in a way, how you are able to maybe afford to do this because there are things that, you know, you could have grown the company a lot bigger and scaled, or you could have not dedicated all of those man hours to some of your, your kinship projects, but you somehow landed at this feeling of, of enough. Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Enough is, is a moving target and I don't want to suggest that I have arrived at some, you know, illuminated answer because I'm even 12 years in of this business, I, I of course, know that this answer of what is enough is not truly a destination. It It, it is a moving target and it should be because the needs of the company and the needs of the group and organization will change, and so, but it needs to be, I think, front of mind for families, for um, companies, for organizations. I mean, you yourself are this great example of this question. I mean, people can go to the homepage of your of your website and read in three or four paragraphs and if anybody has ever lived the life of how much is enough you have, you are. And so, you know, that it, this, this is um, it's, it, it does, it is, it can be kind of messy because we're uh, we're swimming upstream uh, culturally with this question of how much is enough. Most people don't want to ask that question because there's this tremendous pressure to, not ask the question and, and answer life's um, challenges and opportunities with more, more, more. And we are, as a world, um, as a world economy, we are um, pressed into thinking that the health of our economies, of our nation's economies, you know, is the GDP. Well, I mean, that's all about consumer spending. And so we are conditioned all over the world into believing that the health of our economies is tied inextricably mm-hmm. to consumer spending and when we when we sort of make when we disconnect from that even as a little company then we're fighting this tide but we when we when we resist and when we are able to within our within ourselves ask how much is enough or even as an owner of a company how much is enough how much do i need to make personally um, then there can be great, tremendous freedom and liberation in answering that question, even if it's not a perfect answer. Even asking the question collectively as a group, as a family, you know, just even asking the question, saying it out loud um, is a tremendous um, freeing feeling that I'm sure you all felt mm-hmm. as a family when you began to ask this question, it happens. We feel the freedom. And in that freedom, all these other things are possible, I think, in our lives by answering that question.
0: And, and one thing um, I'd really love to chat about, Sean, is visioning. It's something, that you, it's something that you do, and it's something that you get your chocolate university students to do, your farmers, and the schools that you work with in other countries. So can you explain like what visioning is, and if there's any like exercises or activities that people could do at home around this?
1: Sure. The, the, I learned this concept of visioning from Ari Weinzweig, uh, who founded Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Here in the U.S., uh, he founded that in the early '80s, and he's written many books on visioning. So, if anybody wants to find a book, they can search Zingerman's and Ari. Just remembering Ari A R I and visioning, and you'll come up with uh, some great books that he's written. I cite his book on visioning in my book, but the 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 main idea of this this concept of visioning is, let's say, um, for uh, people can do it, organizations, companies, I've, I've trained all of the above to do this, including students, eighth grade students, um, students in Tanzania. And what we need to do is we need to um, pick A time period that we want to write our vision, maybe we want one year. Um, Right now we're doing a vision plan with the farmers in Tanzania. These are very poor farmers, and we're in the midst of a 10-year vision of greatness for these farmers, and we're three years into it. Um, But the idea is to pick our time frame. Uh, Zingerman's Deli, when they wrote their first vision, it was a 20-year vision. And so you think, wow, I can't think, yes, you can, you can, you can absolutely hope and dream in sentences and in paragraphs uh, 20 years into the future. And so one of the things that we ask people to do in the very beginning part of this process is pick a time frame, and then we want them to list out the things that they're proud of. And we want to do this in a short period of time, maybe we'll take five minutes or 10 minutes and say, okay, get a pen and paper out and write down all of the things that you're proud of, the things that you've accomplished. And what this does is it has, it puts you in this mindset, this mind frame of positive thinking about your life and positive thinking about all of the things that you've done that maybe you've never even taken the time to write down all in one place, the things that you've accomplished, not just financially or professionally but even personally like the friends that you that you have the family that you have how your children are doing and how healthy they are these are all things that we can write down and it gets us in this mindset of thinking into the future in a positive way because of all the accomplishments that that we've had then you know we want people and this is i i would say kind of a challenging thing and believe me it's challenging with farmers And we want them to write on paper in a timed, you know, maybe it's 15 minutes, maybe it's 20 minutes, and I would ask you to write on paper in the present tense however many years it is into the future. So if you were saying, I want to write my 10-year vision of greatness for the Campbell family, uh, and you and your wife were to sit down and do this, and you would write And you would say it is November 29th in the year 2027. And you would write in paragraph form and you would not stop writing until the timer uh, expired that 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And you would not write bullet points. You don't write one, two, three, four in paragraph form. Tell me, what do you see with your family? What is your family doing? Give me all of the details. Tell me about the place where you are. What are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you touching? What are you saying to your wife? What is she saying to you? And then it's, I'm saying amazing things happen when you do this. Uh, There are so many companies and people and families that have done this and you would not believe the things in, that come out of this. Now we can in my book I talk about this in detail about how to do it, how we did it for Tanzanian kids, and how businesses can do it, and how entrepreneurs can do it. But that's essentially the outline. And then there are things you do to kind of finish up your vision. And but the thing I want people to keep in mind is this is not a strategic plan. This is the strategic plan comes after the visioning. The visioning is this beautiful story and narrative that. You're dreaming into the future with real, live details. The strategic plan is how you execute those things, and that's a completely different document.
0: Yeah, that's um, – it's so beautiful. It's definitely something that um, I've kind of dabbled in a little bit in the past, um, but, but as you said there, you know, what's the Campbell family? I've actually never sat down and, and done it with Inga. Um, mm-hmm. so that's something that I think we're definitely going to do. And especially, you know, we're, we're chatting here towards the end of the year, which I feel is always, um, you know, I think these things you can do at any time of the year, but there, there seems to be a bit of a momentum around this time of the year, but Sean, I, I have one final question, um, for you. And it's one that I, I ask all of my guests and that's, if you could please describe your perfect day.
1: My perfect day would be um, hmm. my perfect day would be one where I wake up and do the thing that I do every day when I wake up, and that is I pray for other people in the morning. I don't do it at night because it's harder for me to sleep. And so I do my intercessory prayer for others um, in the morning and um, I light a candle. And I do my prayers. I would do my prayers in the morning. And I would have breakfast with my wife of pancakes, because I love pancakes. Um, and that would, be my, that would be my perfect breakfast. And then I would go on a walk with my wife. We love to walk. And if you, since you've read the book, you know how much I love walking and talking. And uh, I would go on a long walk, and my perfect day would not be someplace other than my home. It would be in my home, at my in my hometown, and um, my my day would be like that. And I would have my daughter would be there. She would be visiting from Austin, Texas, with her husband, and I would I would ha- spend time with her, uh, talking with her and and just spending time with the family. And then as it got dark, it would be a little bit cool outside, and I would build a fire outside on my patio, and I love to be around the fire, and I would cook something uh, on the fire and just talk with my family and listen to music, probably Van Morrison um, is be, would be what I would listen to, and, um, and that would be uh, my perfect day.
0: That sounds tremendous it's it's interesting though the <laughs> the pancakes for breakfast that's definitely a an american thing yeah yeah i guess it is
1: it's very uh high in carbs yeah. um, and i don't have it very often but uh but i i really do i i love pancakes and and um we're we're a, kind of a food family and not in a um uh, in a snobby kind of way but I mean you can imagine owning a chocolate factory I get the chance to really try a lot of good food but um sometimes a simple pancake is just uh, just what the doctor ordered and <laughs> and so I love that oh and I forgot to include I would probably have some kind of craft beer I really love beer and um i would i would include um craft beer in that too that would for sure be it
0: yeah the craft the craft beer in australia is definitely picked up in the last you know say 10 to 5 years it's um it's it's so mainstream at the moment it's um it's beautiful it's it's i feel like beer is now kind of kind of on that level uh that equal kind of level of what wine was kind of back in the 90s and 80s
1: absolutely i mean it's it's uh the, well, in, in America, the craft beer movement is, people said five or ten years ago that, that it was reaching a saturation point, so you can imagine now, I mean, it's experienced just explosive growth, and um, we'll see We'll see how long the, the American marketplace can support this just rapid, rapid growth of craft beer. Uh, meanwhile, people like me who love it, you know, we get to experience all different mm-hmm. kinds of beer, and and I love to support my local brewers, and um, we have quite a few in my town. And and uh, and and so when I travel, though, I like to taste other uh, beers from around the country and around the world. And um, but yeah, it's 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 crazy, and it's and it's very interesting because it's craft beer, it's coffee, it's chocolate, all of this food. Um, and uh, the thing I would I ask people to remember though is remember who made it. So and whether they're in your country or your town, just remember them and, and remember the people who harvested the crops that, that, they, that you know, were required to make this product. And I think that that kind of mindful consumption is one of the things that will help our world, mm. not in a weird way, in a way that you can't enjoy it, but in a way that's balanced, mindful consumption
0: no i agree and sean i just want to say you know thank you so much for your time you know your beautiful work and the deliberateness in which you live and share your life and the way that you you touch so many people but if if people want to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you or ask asking you know, oc chocolate what's the best way for them to do that
1: the um the best way would be they can go to our website, askinosi.com, A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E.com. And another one is my blog, which is seanaskinosi.com, And then, of course, if, they, if someone wants to talk to me about the book or anything, I put my email in the book, um, hello at seanaskinosi.com. And I'd be happy to hear what people think, and have ideas, or questions, or things they want to tell me about the book. And I'd love to hear from them. And and I, uh, of course, and I'm on Facebook, um, Sean Askinosi, and Instagram, um, Sean Askinosi. And and uh, I hope, I hope you'll, when you come to America to house it again, that you'll come visit me and my chocolate factory.
0: I would definitely love that, Sean, and I will make sure that I I link to everything that you, you mentioned there and everything that we've spoken about through our chat in the show notes at liveimmediately.com. dot uh, com. Is there anything that you want to say or anything that that we've missed that we've missed in this beautiful chat?
1: I would just ask people. I ask folks, regardless of whether you're a business or a family or just a person, I encourage people to reflect on. Um, who might need them in their lives, and to not wait. Don't wait if you're a company or a family or whatever. Don't wait until the time is right, but to roll up your sleeves and to meet a need that's in your neighborhood or on your street um, because people need you, and we need them. We need to serve them in a way that that helps them because it's it's a way for us to to find each other in the world. And I just encourage people to do that.
0: That's beautiful, Sean. It really is. And and again, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, have fun and live immediately.